so I guess we should start with like an explanation of what this is. We found out the disconcerting information that some of you actually listen to this podcast as you fall asleep. And so perhaps this will be uh, especially interesting to those listeners. We are going to be reading Jane Eyre for a couple of reasons. Amongst the boring reasons, it is in the public domain and it is considered a tentpole romance, I think. For sure. It has many of the tropes the modern genre relies heavily on and chooses to reinvent or repurpose or just reuse. Yeah, and I think it's also one of the critical corners of feminist argument as it relates to romance. Mm -hmm. Not to spoil anything, but because of the woman in the attic. And of course, also our hero, Mr. Rochester. Mr. Rochester. So I'm going to be reading odd chapters. So I'll be starting us off out of a Barnes and Noble classic edition with introduction and notes by Susan Ostrov Weiser. So I do have a footnoted edition. I got my book keeping with the theme of public domain out of a free library here in Chicago. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I saw it when I was walking by and I stopped and I took it and I have no memory as to whether or not I replaced it with anything. I don't know fully how little libraries work. I don't understand completely the etiquette around them. So moving right along. I think it's like take a book, leave a book as you can. You know what I mean? Where it's like you don't have a book that you want to get rid of all the time. But there are many times where I'm like, ooh, you've struck my fancy. Yeah, I have no way of like remembering where I get these books from, like the actual little libraries. And it speaks to my impulsivity, I think. Yeah, I think it speaks to a lot of our impulsivity where it's like, I think they're like least 15 around my neighborhood. And like, I was making a concerted effort to like take books to the various ones. But now I'm just like, meh, you're going to get what you're going to get or nothing at all. Yeah. So I'm really excited for this. Jane Eyre wasn't my kind of first classical romance that I fell in love with. Mine was Wuthering Heights. Mm. which I read on the internet when I was like 13. Nice. What about you? Have you ever read Jane Eyre before? I have. I've read it. This would be my third time all the way through. I was staunchly in the Jane Austen camp when I believed that there was such a thing as a binary where you like had to stand one or the other. Mm. And since I found Pride and Prejudice and Persuasion before I found Jane Eyre, I was like, obviously it won't be as good. Turns out it's great and you don't have to stand one or the other. They're different. I would definitely say the more alt-goth chicks tended towards the Bronte, which is interesting to think of it as a binary, but I always think of it as the sisters versus Austin. Yeah, that's certainly how it felt. Yeah. This was written by Charlotte Bronte, and what do we know about Charlotte? What do we know about Lottie? Oh, God, I love that nickname. We don't know much about the Bronte sisters. They all died really sad deaths. There was that really good uh, miniseries that came out about them two years ago. Incredibly brilliant, incredibly wrecked. I think we should just make up stuff about the Bronte sisters that we know. Since their works are in the public domain anyways, it feels fair. They were born to a clergyman and a ghost. Their mother did die young. From the Wikipedia, Bronte, Charlotte, who favored the Protestant ideal of an individual in direct contact with God, objected to the stern Catholicism of Madame Hager, which she considered a tyrannical religion that enforced conformity and submission to the Pope. 
So she had some strong feelings about Catholicism. Emily published under the pseudonym Ellis. Mm. Charlotte published under Currer. Oh, and Anne published under Acton. It's easy because of the first letters. Mm-hmm. And don't forget sweet baby Branwell, who was a boy <laughs> and didn't do much. He died of the TB. Oh, Emily was known as a great animal lover. <laughs> they just sound like such like tortured young people. It says in my chronology, Branwell is summarily dismissed from his post as tutor. Charlotte discovers Emily's book of poems, plans publication. <laughs> yes, it was Charlotte who is in love with Constantin Hager over in Brussels. There it is. Age 25, she traveled to Belgium in company with her sister Emily, and she remained there for two years with a return to Haworth in the middle after the death of her aunt. She had gone ostensibly to learn French and German so that the three sisters could set up their own school on their return. But the truth was that she wanted to see something of the world outside Yorkshire. And her great other friend Mary Taylor was already in Brussels. So go to Brussels, man. Monsieur Hager was a professor at the school attended by Charlotte and Emily, who is a proud, strong man, somewhat aloof and exacting. A bit cold and mysterious, a man who dominated all around him. Sound familiar? Mm. Charlotte had met her Mr. Rochester. She loved being ordered around by him while she submissively followed his orders. Yeah. There were two problems. One, he was married to the school's headmistress. And two, he didn't share her strong feelings. Yep, those are two big issues. Oh no, those are huge. And that explains the Wikipedia passage about how she was super anti-Catholic and resented Madame Hager. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Is it really the Catholicism, Charlotte? Is it a little bit more personal than that? Fuck, she has a really hard fucking 44 to 48. You mean 1844 to 1848? I do. Or ages 40, 40. No, 1844 to 1848. She died when she was 38. Yeah, and she was the last surviving one because Branwell dies in September of 48. Emily dies in 48. And then Anne dies. Very sad. And then she's the last one in 1855 at the tender age of 38. Jesus Christ. All right. So with all of that very helpful context (laughs) in mind. Fuck. Let's talk about the Moors. That'll be so nice. I'm so fucking hot right now. I am looking forward to being transported to the gray and chilly world of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter 1 There was no possibility of taking a walk that day. So I'm going to go ahead and already pause and say, what do we think about this as an opening line? We love it. Unabashedly. A hundred percent hooked. (laughs) What do you love about it? It feels like I have just been inculcated in the fact that I cannot have a walk today, which feels like, you know, my 2020 in a nutshell. It feels like a sigh of disappointment as well as a little, you know, irksome at situations one cannot control. I also love that it's not me or I because I hate the first person. And even though this book is in first person and I like this book, I'm glad that it doesn't start off that way. Yeah, there was no possibility. It kind of speaks to stagnancy. Yes. And hopelessness right away. Right away. Okay. There was no possibility of taking a walk that day. 
We had been wandering, indeed, in the leafless shrubbery an hour in the morning, but since dinner, Mrs. Reed, when there was no company, dined early. The cold winter wind had brought with it clouds so somber and a rain so penetrating that further outdoor exercise was now out of the question. I was glad of it. I love that turn, mm-hmm. which I think kind of speaks to like the proto goth chicks being very into the Brontes. Yeah, I mean, I totally get it. No possibility of going outside. I was glad of it. Yeah, fuck those other guys and they're larking about in the sunshine. I'm going to brood here in the corner. I was glad of it. I never liked long walks, especially on chilly afternoons. Dreadful to me was the coming home in the raw twilight with nipped fingers and toes and a heart saddened by the chidings of Bessie, the nurse, and humbled by the consciousness of my physical inferiority to Eliza, John, and Georgiana Reed. Oh, what a sad sack. Well, the nurse picks on her, too. (laughs) I know, everyone picks on Jane. Which really does tell us so much about where Jane lives in the pecking order. In the second paragraph, we know so much about Jane already. The said Eliza, John, and Georgiana were now clustered round their mama in the drawing room. She lay reclined on a sofa by the fireside, and with her darlings about her, for the time neither quarreling nor crying, looked perfectly happy. I love how Saturn, mm-hmm. she describes the scene, so resentful. The subtext is rich. It's like Jane Austen, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. Like the true tone of the setting is the subtext as opposed to like all of the implications of it. Mm-hmm. Me, she had dispensed from joining the group, saying she regretted to be under the necessity of keeping me at a distance, but that until she heard from Bessie and could discover by her own observation that I was endeavoring in good earnest to acquire a more sociable and childlike disposition, a more attractive and sprightly manner, something lighter, franker, more natural as it were, she really must exclude me from the privileges intended only for contented, happy little children. This evokes for me the myth of childhood that we read in feminist sci-fi. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. This tells me so much about who would have read Jane Eyre, which would have been people of like a middle to upper class, typically. Mm-hmm. Flat out, the idea of a childhood would have been something that was really only afforded to bourgeoisie, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, as soon as you were like eight or ten and you could work for a wage, you would have had to. Yeah. And, like, when you weren't working for a wage, you were managing a household, basically. Yeah. Or co-managing along with whoever was taking care of stuff. But if you were, you know, middle class or above in the hierarchy, then you could have a childhood. A contented, happy one with privileges. Yes, with privileges. Something lighter, perhaps? Something franker? Something more attractive and sprightly? (laughs) What does Bessie say I have done, I asked. Jane, I don't like cavillers or questioners. Besides, there is something truly forbidding in a child taking up her elders in that manner. Be seated somewhere, and until you can speak pleasantly, remain silent. Quick note, a lot of colons and semicolons here. Mm -hmm. It makes it tricky to read, because I, you know, I don't read very many books where that is uh, in vogue to use. There are a lot of colons. Yeah, I wrote here so many colons. A small breakfast room adjoined the drawing room. I slipped in there. It contained a bookcase. I soon possessed myself of a volume, taking care that it should be one stored with pictures. I mounted into the window seat, gathering up my feet. I sat cross-legged, like a Turk. Asterix, asterix, asterix. And having drawn the red moreen curtain nearly closed, I was shrined in double retirement. 
Folds of scarlet drapery shut in my view to the right hand. To the left were the clear panes of glass protecting, but not separating, me from the drear November day. I love that, between folds of scarlet drapery and a cloudy day. At intervals, while turning over the leaves of my book, I studied the aspect of that winter afternoon. Afar, it offered a pale blank of mist and cloud. Near, a scene of wet lawn and storm-beat shrub, with ceaseless rain sweeping away wildly before a long and lamentable blast. I returned to my book, Bewick's History of British Birds. The letterpress thereof I cared little for, generally speaking. And yet, there were certain introductory pages that, child as I was, I could not pass quite as a blank. They were those which treat of the haunts of sea fowl, of the solitary rocks and promontories, by them only inhabited, on the coast of Norway, studded with isles from its southern extremity, the Lindenness, or Nays, to the North Cape, where the northern ocean in vast whirls boils around the naked melancholy isles of farthest tool and the Atlantic surge pours in among the stormy Hebrides. Is it Hebrides or Hebrides? I think it's the Haberdies. Haberdies? What in the world? Okay. Scotch. I fucking guess. Haberd. Haberd. It's got more of a role in it. More of a, a musicality to that pronunciation. And I'm over here, Kansas. Hebrides! Nor could I pass unnoticed the suggestion of the bleak shores of Lapland, Siberia, Spitsbergen, Nova Zembla, Iceland, Greenland, with the vast sweep of the Arctic zone and those forbidden regions of dreary space, that reservoir of frost and snow where firm fields of ice, the accumulation of centuries of winters, blazed in alpine heights above heights, surround the pole, and concenter the multiplied rigors of extreme cold. Of these death-white realms, I formed an idea of my own, shadowy, like all the half-comprehended notions that float dim around children's brains, but strangely impressive. The words in these introductory pages connected themselves with the succeeding vignettes and gave significance to the rock standing up alone in a sea of billow and spray, to the broken boat stranded on a desolate coast, to the cold and ghastly moon glancing through bars of cloud at a wreck just sinking. Oh boy, do we like to be alone. (laughs) (laughs) I over-identify with this passage so much. Like down to the part about she's like looking at pictures of ducks. Yeah, dude. What's so funny about this is like, not only do I see so many romance heroines in their like sad little aloneness, but I also see like Lyra from The Golden Compass. There are like actually a lot of books for young adults that start with a very like lonely child thinking about aloneness and being like, it's okay to be alone. Do you think that's because of Jane Eyre or do you think it's because a lot of lonely children go on to be authors? You know, I don't know. Column A, column B, I think. I I think it's a Venn diagram. I think it is too. That's just a circle. That's just a circle. <laughs> I know that Philip Pullman really loved Jane Eyre. He talked about it in a couple of interviews. But like, yeah, shades of Harry Potter alone with a book here. Alone with a book. 
a lonely child. But I also love that this passage is spending so much time describing the content of, you know, an unrelated book mm-hmm. in order to create an overall sense of mood, I think. Mm-hmm. But also to just like create a sense of imagination. Mm-hmm. Like we're already in the novel and then we're in this other world of a nonfiction text. Mm-hmm. And I love that whirling ocean description from a nonfiction text those details speak to what I think is still so appealing about historical romance. All right, we continue on. I cannot tell what sentiment haunted the quiet, solitary churchyard with its inscribed headstone, its gate, its two trees, its low horizon, girdled by a broken wall, and its newly risen crescent testing to the hour of eventide. The two ships becalmed on a torpid sea, I believed to be marine phantoms. The fiend pinning down the thief's pack behind him, I passed over quickly. It was an object of terror. So was the black-horned thing seated aloof on a rock, surveying a distant crowd surrounding a gallows. Each picture told a story, mysterious often to my undeveloped understanding and imperfect feelings, yet ever profoundly interesting, as interesting as the tales Bessie sometimes narrated on winter evenings when she chanced to be in good humor. And when, having brought her ironing table to the nursery hearth, she allowed us to sit around it. And while she got up Mrs. Reed's lace frills and crimped her nightcap borders, fed our eager attention with passages of love and adventure taken from old fairy tales and older ballads, or, as at a later period I discovered, from the pages of Pamela and Henry, the Earl of Moreland. (laughs) It is a punchline. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is the actual first recorded romance, Pamela, is the punchline itself. Mm-hmm. Or Virtue Rewarded by Samuel Richardson. Popular fiction of the day, as we would say. Certainly was. With Buick on my knee, Bewick, perhaps, I was then happy, happy at least in my way. I feared nothing but interruption, and that came too soon. The breakfast room door opened. Bo, Madam Mope! cried the voice of John Reed, and he paused. He found the room apparently empty. You're a real John Reed. You've been picking on poor Jane, Isabeau. Madame Mope. Definitely. John Reed it me. The cruelty of that assessment's gonna become apparent. Where the dickens is she, he continued. Lizzie, Georgie, calling to his sisters. Joan is not here. Tell Mama she has run out into the rain, bad animal. It is well I drew the curtain, thought I, and I wished fervently he might not discover my hiding place, nor would John Reed have found it out himself. He was not quick either of vision or conception, but Eliza just put her head in at the door and said at once, She is in the window seat, to be sure, Jack. And I came out immediately, for I trembled at the idea of being dragged forth by the said Jack. What do you want? I asked with awkward diffidence. Say, what do you want, Master Reed? was the answer. I want you to come here. And seating himself in an armchair, he intimated by gesture that I was to approach and stand before him. John Reed was a schoolboy of 14 years old, four years older than I, for I was but 10, large and stout for his age with a dingy and unwholesome skin, thick lineaments, in a spacious visage, heavy limbs and large extremities. He gorged himself habitually at table, which made him bilious, ill-natured in any case, and gave him a dim and bleared eye and flabby cheeks. 
He ought now to have been at school, but his mama had taken him home for a month or two on account of his delicate health. Mr. Miles, the master, affirmed he would do very well if he had fewer cakes and sweetmeats sent to him from home. But the mother's heart turned from an opinion so harsh, and inclined rather to the more refined idea that John's sallowness was owing to over-application and perhaps to pining after home. John had not much affection for his mother and sisters and an antipathy to me. He bullied and punished me, not two or three times in the week, nor once or twice in the day, but continually. Every nerve I had feared him, and every morsel of flesh on my bones shrank when he came near. There are moments when I was bewildered by the terror he inspired, because I had no appeal whatever against either his menace or his inflictions. The servants did not like to offend their young master by taking my part against him, and Mrs. Reed was blind and deaf on the subject. She never saw him strike or heard him abuse me, though he did both now, and then in her very presence, more frequently, however, behind her back. Habitually obedient to John, I came up to his chair. He spent some three minutes in thrusting out his tongue at me as far as he could without damaging the roots. Three minutes! Jeepers creepers! Ugh. He has a spacious visage and is not quick of conception. No, it takes him a full... So the first minute is just doing it. <laughs> the second minute is recognizing that he's doing it. And the third minute is enjoying it. I knew he would soon strike, and while dreading the blow, can you imagine standing there for three minutes knowing that this kid is going to hit you? No. And just watching him repeatedly dart out his tongue like a lizard snake person, like a big hairless bear. I knew he would soon strike, and while dreading the blow, I mused on the disgusting and ugly appearance of him who would presently deal it. I wonder if he read that notion in my face, for, all at once, without speaking, he struck suddenly and strongly. I tottered, and on regaining my equilibrium, retired back a step or two from his chair. That is for your impudence in answering Mama a while since, said he, and for your sneaking way of getting behind the curtains and for the look you had in your eyes two minutes since, you rat. Accustomed to John Reed's abuse, I never had an idea of replying to it. My care was how to endure the blow which would certainly follow the insult. What were you doing behind the curtain? He asked. I was reading. Show the book. I returned to the window and fetched it thence. You have no business to take our books. You are a dependent, Mama says. You have no money. Your father left you none. You ought to beg and not to live here with gentlemen's children like us and eat the same meals we do and wear clothes at our Mama's expense. Now I'll teach you to rummage my bookshelves, for they are mine. All the house belongs to me or will do in a few years. Go and stand by the window out of the way of the mirror and the windows. Go stand by the door out of the way of the mirror and the windows. Sorry, I just broke the world building there. I did so, not at first aware what was his intention. But when I saw him lift and poise the book and stand and act to hurl it, I instinctively started aside with a cry of alarm. Not soon enough, however. The volume was flung, it hit me, and I fell, striking my head against the door and cutting it. The cut bled, the pain was sharp. My terror had passed its climax. Other feelings succeeded. Wicked and cruel boy, I said. You are like a murderer. You are like a slave driver. You are like the Roman emperors. I had read Goldsmith's History of Rome and had formed my opinion of Nero, Caligula, and C. <laughs> is Anne C, is that like Anne Caesar or is that et cetera? Et cetera. Also, I had drawn parallels in silence, which I never thought thus to have declared out loud. What, what? He cried. Did she say that to me? Did you hear her, Eliza and Georgiana? Won't I tell Mama? But first, 
He ran headlong at me. I felt him grasp my hair and shoulder. He had closed with a desperate thing. I really saw in him a tyrant, a murderer. I felt a drop or two of blood from my head trickle down my neck and was sensible of some pungent suffering. These sensations, for the time, predominated over fear, and I received him in a frantic sort. I don't very well know what I did with my hands, but he called me rat, rat, and bellowed aloud. Aid was near him. Eliza and Georgiana had run for Mrs. Reed, who was gone upstairs, but now came upon the scene, followed by Bessie and the maid Abbott. We were parted. I heard the words. Dear, dear, what a fury to fly at Master John. Did ever anyone see such a picture of passion? Then Mrs. Reed subjoined, take her away to the red room and lock her in there. Four hands were immediately laid upon me and I was born upstairs. And that's the end of chapter one. Sir John is as ugly on the inside as he is on the outside. He doesn't really have a character arc, spoiler alert, right? Normally we complain about that sort of thing, but there is something so pleasurable in just like the, ugh, like the, <laughs> the way he's described. It's almost satisfying that he lives up to all of the promises of his physical appearance as described. I don't know. What do you think? I think it is. And I think we find one of those pleasures is like, you don't have to second guess yourself, right? He is as ugly as he is inside and out. And there's something really comforting in like having the thing be the thing versus like when we meet later characters who are beautiful and sinister. And like that kind of juxtaposition is often disquieting, especially to like, you know, the childhood perspective. And like he is just genuinely terrible. And I think the other pleasure and or recognition of of just how awful he is is the fucking entitlement of it he's like all of this will be mine i will be the lord you are no one and it's like oh god but you know he attributes his sources right he says mama says and i think that also speaks so clearly to like even this evil was placed into him by someone Mm -hmm. and I'm of course thinking about this in in terms of our current events but we are all responsible for one another for better or worse yeah yeah I just love the curtain and the stormy day outside and the book and the whirling ocean and just this almost collage of description that we get in the first chapter which is pulled from other literary references direct quotes I just really enjoyed reading that do you have any Thoughts on the first chapter? Starts off with a bang. It certainly does. Four hands pulling her out and really does that like classic first chapter function of like creating a setting, setting a mood, you know? She was born away upstairs. Yeah, totally. For the moment, that's important. But I feel like these characters will return in different shapes throughout the book. Hmm. Yeah, and doing a really good job of introducing all of the characters that, you know, we'll be interacting with for the moment. All right. I enjoyed reading that. Did you enjoy listening to it, Isabeau? I loved it. I love being read to. <laughs> well, I'm excited to be read to next week, and I hope everyone else enjoyed it as well. All right. Something to look forward to. Chapter two. As read by, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right. Is it, is it Biao? Most people like to pronounce it as, is, uh, Bew. A lot of people say that, but it's true. 
Okay, so we'll catch you on the flippity flop on the dreary moors. Jane Eyre read along. (laughs) On the public access read along.